I, uh, four days ago, I was in Somalia. We went to uh, Mogadishu. And I'm like rounding up, I knew a total of zero people in Mogadishu. But we started this country torn by a civil war. There is no government. There is no police. There is, there's nothing, just a big civil war with 10 million mad people. And everybody's got guns. And, and we get to the, uh, the airport and we're like, you hire these guys with machine guns to protect you. And so there, there are six of them in this truck in front of you and you're the guy in the van that's with the tinted windows behind them. Who does everybody aim for? I want to be in the Prius behind the guy in the tinted windows, right? So we're driving through these roads and it feels like a level of call of duty. I mean, it's like... <laughs> And somebody cuts in between us and the guys with the machine guns. And that's how people like go missing, right? So the guys in the, with the machine guns start shooting. And I'm like, yikes! That's the only word I could come up with. <laughs> and the guy, in the, the guy in the, that was driving says, this is really bad. I mean, there's two things you don't want to hear in Somalia. This is really bad, or I'm the captain now, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm like, yikes! But you know what, you guys? Isn't that where we want to live when you're following Jesus? Right on the edge of yikes. Because guys like me, he talks about me in scripture. He talks about guys like me, maybe some of you that are comfortable. Right? And, and that's the deal. I've got a beautiful wife and a, a pickup truck and a house. And I'm living right in the middle of comfortable. And he says, Bob, live right on the edge of yikes. Because you know what? Then you'll actually need me. Like guys and, guys and gals that aren't comfortable, they actually need the Holy Spirit. Right? The comforter. Man, that's so over my pay grade. But, but our job, get out on the edge of yikes. And you know what? If we're not on the edge of yikes, find someone who is. And get out on the ledge with them. Go like double yikes. Go like, what do you do? I don't know. Smallest piece on the chessboard one step closer to Jesus. Yeah, I've watched that video over and over several times. Um, I've even used it in, in other sermons. And every single time, it causes me to reflect on the times where I have felt like I was on the edge of yikes. In my life, my faith, uh, just a couple of short months after I graduated high school, found myself in my dorm room in Knoxville, Tennessee, six hours away from home, unpacking. I didn't know anyone. And I remember thinking to myself, like, yikes, what am I doing? It's too late now. They got my money. I'm staying. You fast forward to four years after that, and I'm leaving the place that I've come to know as home. And I'm heading to Michigan. Of all places, when you grow up in Ohio, you don't move to Michigan. But I moved to Michigan as a youth and children's minister. Hostile territory. So, and I remember thinking like, what am I doing? This is crazy. You fast forward to the time where I met my wife. I knew from the first date that I wanted to marry her. And I remember stepping out on the edge of yikes into a long-distance relationship. And then again, asking her father for her hand in marriage, like, you know. And then again, when I actually popped the question, which is still my favorite yikes moment I've ever had by far, is when I asked Sarah to marry me. And then you fast forward again to just the last couple months. 
leaving her home church, a place we'd come to know as home, to relocate to a brand new area, a brand new group of people, and in a position that the church has actually never really had before. You talk about yikes. But do you know what all of these things had in common? They were never done in isolation. Not a single pivotal point in my life was done alone. They were always done with other people. They were always prayed about specifically and boldly with other people. In fact, all of the yikes moments I've ever had, I became much more bold to step out on the edge when I was surrounded with other people praying and doing life with me. Like in college, you know, after a few short weeks, you, you figure out who your friends are and you begin to have that connection. I remember there were just a few guys that I gravitated towards. They gravitated towards me and we became friends and I learned to do life with people and I learned how to pray with other people, something I had never really known how to do before. And then you fast forward to the that first church, I mean, not only being a Buckeye in Wolverine territory, but like you're moving your whole life. And I remember there were people surrounding me with prayer, family, friends, the university that I graduated from, praying for its graduates. That church there being so welcoming and praying for me and walking with me. And the day that I asked my wife to marry me, like not only that, but since the first, like the beginning of our relationship, there were people praying. It was her home church. I was on staff there and we had so many people that were, that were praying for us. And then the day that I actually popped the question, I'd like everyone I knew praying because I wanted all the power in the world to make sure that she would say yes to marrying a crazy guy like me. I'm like, this would be so embarrassing if she says no. And I don't even know what I'd do. So please, <laughs> had everyone praying. And then even the last couple months here, I just, all of these events in my life, all of these pivotal moments in my life, there were other people with me. There were other people who, who would help me step out on the edge of yikes and walk closely with me. Are you one of those people who typically lives your life and does your faith alone? Maybe you're one of those families that is like the private church family. You go to church and that's it, and you're not really connected. You kind of do your church thing alone. Maybe you're here this morning, and when you pray, you feel so alone. Isol like Solitude is good, but isolation and loneliness are not, and you feel like you're just alone. Maybe you're here today and, and maybe you've experienced some sort, of, some sort of loss or maybe you're here today and you're new and this is a big place and there's a lot of people and you just kind of feel alone and, and maybe like you're lost or maybe, maybe your relationship is in trouble and you sit in these seats alone because of differing views in your household. Are you alone? Are you isolated? You know, we have a lot of really cool technology available to us today. iPhones, iPads, iWhatevers. And the, the, it's really cool. You can send a text message to someone all the way across the world. But I do think it has a pretty serious side effect. I think it's creating isolation. No longer do you have to meet up with someone for coffee. You can just text them without ever even seeing them. No longer did you have to schedule a time to sit down and pray with someone. You can just send a text saying, hey, praying for you. 
There's even movies that are hitting the box office that are making it big where the whole plot of the movie is living in a virtual reality. Completely separated from other people and they're doing really well. We live in a culture that's very fast-paced. And in this fast-paced culture, when you see somebody you haven't seen in a while, what's one of the main questions that you ask them? Keeping busy? Like that's the mark of success. But is it? What I think is happening is we're creating a culture of isolation. And even in our churches, we can, we can feel so alone sometimes in our churches. Some, for some of us, probably for many of us, the only time we ever spend praying with other people is at church on a Sunday morning. And maybe you're not, maybe you don't pray because you don't really know how or you're not a church person or you're not a praying person. Not only are we tempted to do life in faith alone and in isolation, but we are also tempted to do life in faith comfortably. We're comfortable in our life. We're comfortable in our faith. And I, I think of how safe my prayers and probably your prayers are. Think about it. How safe are our prayers? We pray for things like food. Like God created it, but we pray for things like food and we pray about food that isn't even good for us, that it would nourish our bodies. You've done it. You know, you're praying for this bowl of ice cream, like God's going to change it into almond milk on the way down, <laughs> you know, or, or, or we, pray for, we pray for mission trips, but we pray for safety first, which is good to pray for safety, but have you noticed that sometimes we pray for safety before we ever pray for the mission, that maybe we have to get a little bit dangerous to see what's going to happen, happen. Or I think a health concern is so important to pray for. But oftentimes we will pray in general. Because maybe we're a little nervous that it's not going to happen the way we're praying it will happen. Are you one of those people who lives in isolation? You see, if, if you're like me, you may have suffered or maybe you're currently suffering from a disorder. Uh, it's a disorder of the faith and it's, it's called OCD, obsessive comfort disorder. And it's very serious because if you, if you suffer from obsessive comfort disorder, here's what it looks like. You come to church on Sunday morning or maybe any place that you inhabit frequently, coffee shop, whatever, but you come to church on Sunday morning and you know you've got obsessive comfort disorder. When you go to the seat that everyone knows you always sit in, you're like, oh, that's me. And someone else is sitting there. Your mouth starts to foam a little bit. You start to shake. And a tiny part of you wonders, like, when they go to sit down, what it would look like if you went. <laughs> you know you've got obsessive comfort disorder when you hear the word life group or small group, and all you can think about are getting emotional with people and sharing your feelings when people don't really need to know your feelings. And it'll even cause like nervous armpit sweat when you think about sitting in a group of people praying out loud maybe, or having them over in your house where your life is unfiltered. And it causes some anxiety. It's obsessive comfort disorder. You know you have obsessive comfort disorder when you're a parent and your kids are about to graduate high school or college or, or, or the military and they're about to go out into the real world or be deployed. And you know you've got obsessive comfort disorder when you've done everything you can to make sure they cannot survive without you. You are their alarm clock, their bank account, their fashion, actually they're probably your fashion coach, their, their life's advisor, their, maybe their actual coach for their sports, and you've made it so nice and comfortable because you don't want them to leave. 
because they're unprotected in the real world. You know, you've got obsessive comfort disorder when your prayers, they're never really bold. They're never really specific. They're just kind of general. You see, we can have obsessive comfort disorder and we could become very isolated in our prayers, can't we? We'll pray about things that we know are probably likely to happen. We'll pray alone because praying in a group feels weird. We'll pray for food. And I said this earlier, and don't judge me, please. I just have to come clean about something. I do this sometimes, but I will purposely start eating before we pray just to watch someone's reaction. It's like you say your thing, you have to pray before you eat, and I'll just be like, just to mess with them. Just, I just like to see, I'm, I'm a curious guy. And not only this, but we will become so comfortable in our prayer. And we do this in our, in our classes. We did this in our Bible college classes. We'll do this in life groups. Sometimes we'll do it in our service. But we'll use prayer as a transition piece into another part of the service or another part of the evening in our, in our groups. We're using it as a cushion to get more time. In other words, as comfort. So we can transition well. But what if our comfort was never God's priority in the first place? And what if isolation was never God's intent, was never his plan for you or for me? See, solitude is a very great spiritual discipline, but isolation and loneliness are not. And what if... The reason we're not seeing God's power so powerfully displayed like it is in other parts of the world is because we aren't praying specifically. We are isolated and we're comfortable. And what if the key to this distant feeling that we feel towards God and towards other people rests in two things. How we pray and who we pray with, which for a lot of us is alone. We're in our Rooted in Prayer series today, and Rooted is one of our core values of LCC. We want to be rooted in His Word, and we want to be rooted in prayer. And today we're going to be addressing our obsessive comfort disorder and our isolation that we tend to have in our prayers and in our lives. And I really love the book of Acts because you talk about an absence of comfort. It's all over the book of Acts. And I really love Acts chapter 12. And that's where we'll be this morning. But Acts chapter 12, I like to call the power chapter of the whole book. And the reason is because you see some pretty incredible things happen in Acts chapter 12, which we're about to read. And in Acts chapter 12, you see the key to these powerful events are specific prayers with people. Other than yourselves. That's the two ingredients. Specific prayer and people. And we're going to see that in order to see God's power, we have to get bold and we have to get together. And it starts in Acts chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this was met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Sounds a bit like overkill. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. 
Okay, so not a very positive start to this message on God's power. One of God's most prolific followers is beheaded. And the other is sitting in a jail cell waiting the exact same trial and execution. But how many times have you experienced a setback even when you pray? Because sometimes there are setbacks when we pray. And if you look at verse 5, it says they prayed earnestly for Peter. And they're praying for him actually while he's in prison. They are praying earnestly for him at that exact moment. It doesn't mean that they prayed louder or they used big words. It means they were getting really specific to the point. They were praying earnestly together for Peter. So James, he gets his head knocked off. And now Peter's now locked up in prison awaiting the exact same trial and execution. But it's a holy holiday. So they figured it was probably rude to execute someone on a holy holiday. It's really nice of them. So they wait him, make him wait a day so he can think about it all day. But God does something here. He shows off in these next few verses. Go to verse 6. The night before Herod was to bring him the trial, and remember, people were praying for Peter when this is happening. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off of Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put your clothes and sandals on. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. So Peter, Peter followed him out of prison. But he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought it was a vision. They passed the first and second guards and they came to the iron gate leading to the city. And it opened by itself. Creepy. When they'd walked the length of one street, all of a sudden the angel left him. And Peter finally came to himself and he said this, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel to rescue me from Herod and all of the Jews wanted to happen. Like, what was your first clue, Peter? <laughs> like, this is so unbelievable because he, he doesn't even think it's actually happening. That's how unbelievable this is. And he finally comes to himself, and I wonder what was his clue? Like, did his side hurt from getting hit by an angel? Or, like, did he look down and see that when he was getting dressed, he, like, forgot one of his socks? I don't know. Like, what, what was he feeling in that moment? And we know that this is God's power displayed because you've got to understand something about Roman soldiers and about the whole culture. Of, of this, what they had to go through. If you die, if, if the prisoner died or escaped or anything under your watch, you were killed. Their lives were on the line every single time they were charged with guarding someone. These weren't your average guys. They were, these were highly trained soldiers. And it says that Herod had four squads of four soldiers each. They did that because they rotated throughout the night so that they wouldn't go to sleep. They had a shift, then they went and slept while more came. And this is really interesting because sometimes we read this passage and we'll think that maybe the guards were sleeping. They probably were not. Somehow by God's power, he stops time and he goes and he frees Peter while these soldiers are awake or whatever he made them do. And he walks right out, right in front of them. They weren't just slacking off. They were highly trained and when they realized he was gone, they knew it meant death for them. 
Only the power of God could have set Peter free. You see, sometimes there are setbacks when we pray, but sometimes there is rescue when we pray. And I wonder if we can learn something here this morning. You know, maybe the reason that we don't see God's power displayed like it is in this passage is because we're not doing anything that God has to show off his power to rescue us. We're not stepping out on the edge. We're isolated and comfortable. And maybe the reason we don't see his power is because we don't pray for things that are really close to the heart of God. And Craig alluded to that last week in preparing for this message. Maybe we don't pray about things that are close to the heart of God. Maybe we are too comfortable. So let's talk about the rest of the story. We, we know that we can experience setbacks when we pray. And we also know we can experience great rescue when we pray. But there's a third element at play in this passage here. And I think it's a crucial one because it's probably where some of you and I are this morning. Sometimes there is doubt and discouragement even when we pray. See, at that exact moment, they were praying for Peter and he is set free. It actually happened. And they're praying in Mary's house. And he knew that. So he figured, I should probably go to the house where I know that they're praying for me. Let them know I'm okay. (laughs) So he does. I'll summarize what happens in verse 12 on through the rest of the chapter. So he goes to, to Mary's house. They are still praying for him in that moment. And the answer to their prayer, Peter knocks on the door. And he knocks, and he knocks, and he knocks. They're so busy, they can't be disturbed. So they have, a, they have servants that are praying with them. And they're like, Rhoda, one of the servants like, you got to go answer the door. It's driving us nuts. We can't focus. Just go answer the door. Like, okay, so she breaks away from the prayer. Having just prayed for Peter, she goes to the front door and she opens it. And who does she see? The answer to their prayer. She's so excited and freaks out. She slams the door in his face to go back to tell the others. You talk about welcoming, right? But we're not in that series anymore. So here's the crazy thing. Here's the crazy thing. The disciples, they thought she was nuts. They're like, there's no way. They doubted. And they were discouraged because they prayed for so long and so powerfully and passionately. Nothing has happened. They thought Peter was a dead man, just like James. They're like, he's done. And after some persuasion, they finally realized, maybe we'll go check out what those crazy ladies saying. And there he is, Peter, at the door. The answer to their prayers. So scripture says they invite him in and that he, Peter just tells them what had just happened. Why do we doubt that our prayers are not heard? Why do we doubt that God does not answer them? We can, we can pray and pray and pray for so long and so passionately and nothing happens. And we just think that maybe it's falling on deaf ears. The disciples prayed and prayed. And they thought that their prayers just meant nothing. They said, well, he's gone now. And then there he is. Why do we do that? We pray. And if, if it doesn't happen in our time, if it doesn't happen exactly how we thought it would, how we knew we thought it would, we become discouraged and doubtful. What we do is we fear God not showing up. 
But let me tell you something, church, and I want you to hear this. God doesn't have to be told to show up for us because he already has. He already is. He is waiting to be asked to show off for us. He doesn't need to be told to be with his people. He is. He is waiting to show off for us. And now some ask, like, okay, well, why did James die? And why did Peter live? Both were prayed about. And, and both were great men. Why did one die and the, other, and the other lived? Look, I don't know. I really don't. I don't know the answer to that question. But here's what I do know. Sometimes there are setbacks when we pray. Sometimes there is great rescue when we pray. And sometimes there is discouragement and doubt when we pray. But do you know what all three of those things have in common? I want you to think about Jesus. Think about Jesus because he actually, he and his followers experienced the exact same three things during their life together. Jesus experienced setbacks. Oh, did he experience setbacks? He left heaven to come to earth. That's the biggest setback, to leave your throne to come to earth. And then he traveled with this group of people for years and they never understood who he actually was until he was gone. He experienced setbacks when he would go to these towns and he would try to minister to people and he would be sworn by so many people he wouldn't actually be able to do what he came there to do. The setback. He experienced setbacks when, uh, when people would follow him everywhere he went, criticizing every single thing he ever said and did. <laughs> do you have those kinds of people in your life? Jesus did. And not only that, but he also experienced great rescue. I think of the time when he's pushed to the edge of this town and he's about to be thrown off by a swarm of mad people. And somehow, just like in our story today, by God's power, he walks right through that crowd completely unharmed. He experienced great rescue when he's sent into the wilderness to, and he's tempted and tempted and tempted by Satan. And the word of God sent Satan packing. He experienced great rescue when these Pharisees, these people who hated him, would try to persecute him and plot his death. And, and somehow he was granted the words to say at the right time. He experienced great rescue when he would go into these towns and he would touch people with incurable, contagious diseases. His disciples did the same thing. They never got those diseases. And he experienced rescue when he was killed and buried, and three days later, God rescued him from the dead and brought him back to life. And in so doing that, he rescued every single one of us from the grave and the power of the enemy. Jesus experienced great rescue in the midst of prayer. Yet he and his followers also experienced that third element. They did experience discouragement, and his followers sure experienced some doubt. The best time I can see, the best example I can see of Jesus having discouragement when he's praying is in that garden before he's captured. Scripture will talk, it depends on what translation you read. Some say he sweat literal blood. Some say his sweat was like drops of blood. We just know this. He was discouraged and he was afraid, legitimately. The Son of God, afraid and discouraged. Even Jesus and his followers experienced that. But do you know what all three of those things have in common? They never experienced them alone. Never. 
The only time Jesus was alone is when he retreated to spend time with his father in solitude. But every rescue, every setback, every discouragement and doubt they experienced as a community together. Jesus empowered his disciples. He taught his disciples, you stay together in unity even after I'm gone because that's the only way you'll survive. You stay together in unity. All of the powerful things we see in scripture with God's power being displayed, with the disciples doing incredible things, things, all of them were because they were together and they prayed and lived on the edge of yikes. Whether setbacks, whether doubt and discouragement, or whether rescue, they were together. And here's what I've got to say to us this morning. We have to be willing to step out on the edge of yikes with other people and do dangerous things where only the power of God will rescue us. We have got to break free from comfort and isolation. The truth of the matter is that some of you here this morning have felt locked up and beat up. And there are some of you sitting in these seats this morning that that's how you feel right now. Trapped, anxious, maybe you've experienced loss. Maybe you're here this morning, you're experiencing a broken relationship and you're not, you're uncertain of the future. Maybe you're like me and sometimes you see the things that goes on in the world and it just scares you. Maybe you're sitting in these seats and you legitimately feel alone. Sometimes, sometimes we have to narrow down what scripture actually shows us. And if we can learn anything from Acts 12 this morning, it's this. That those who experience the power of God are with other people on the edge of yikes, praying with other people. Those who experience God's power experience it in community. Praying together and living together in community. And sometimes, guys, when we step on the edge of yikes, our lives will come under fire. We'll be just like Bob was today in our video. We'll be just like Peter or maybe even James and our lives will come under fire. And maybe for you this morning, that's addiction. Maybe this morning it's, it's a broken relationship. Maybe you're experiencing some financial crisis or a health crisis or family drama and you are, you are literally feel like your life is coming under fire and you're on the edge of yikes, but you feel all alone. Or you feel like God's calling you to the edge of yikes to try something, but you're all alone. And some of us feel that way this morning. But let me ask you this, whether you feel alone and isolated, comfortable or not, let me ask you this. Are you isolated? Are you comfortable? Because the only way we will experience God's power is when we surround ourselves in unity with other people and when we pray boldly with other people and powerful things can happen. Let me ask you this as well. Who are you living on the edge with? Who are you doing life with? What's one or two names of people you do life with? Because to do something so dangerous that only God's power can rescue us, we have to be in community. We have to. Get out on the ledge with other people because there's such power when God's people are in unity praying together and living boldly together. There's such power in that. 
do something so dangerous that only God's power can rescue you. Now, I got to tell you this. Not all of our prayers will be answered in the way we thought they should be answered or in the time that they should be answered or even with the outcome that we thought it should have. What we've got to do is we have to pray specific and bold and with other people. And then we have faith in God to take care of the outcome. We've got to put our trust in him. And understand he doesn't have to be asked to show up for us. Because he already is. There's an area of the world where Christianity is just exploding. There are new believers left and right in this part of the world. I didn't believe it when I read it, but it is true. It's in China. It's one of the fastest growing Christian nations in the entire world right now. Do you ever wonder why? You can't have obsessive comfort disorder... And, and live in China and be a Christian in China. You can't be isolated in China and be a follower of Christ. You have to be with other people on the edge of yikes. And I think about how many people do we know who are praying for the missionaries in China? And how many people do we know that maybe live in China that are praying for their countrymen to come to know Jesus? I picture scenes like in the book of Acts like we just read about. I picture scenes just like that happening right now in China. These pockets of people meeting in living rooms or even in basements and cellars, praying for those Christians who are persecuted in that country, praying for their fellow countrymen to come to know Christ, just like we found in scripture today. And look what it's doing in that part of the world. It is exploding. Because friends, God does not have to show up because he can't not show up. He's here with you right now. He is asking you to say, God, show off. And look what it's doing in a part of the world that's anti-Christian. It's exploding. The famous heroes of the faith, they were never made in isolation. They were always made with other people on the edge of yikes. And we have, every single one of us, we have one thing that we need to do. Whether you are new to the faith or maybe you don't even believe at all. You're not even sure about this whole church thing. Or you're a follower of Jesus and you have been for decades. We have one thing we need to do today. Be with other people. And I would challenge you to go a step further. And not just be present with people, but pray with other people. It can be weird. But there is something powerful that happens when God's people pray together. Now maybe you're sitting in these seats and you're not a follower of Jesus. And I totally understand that. I want to say welcome. And maybe you are a follower of Jesus and you still aren't fully convinced of the power of community. Maybe you're like me, kind of a type A personality, do it all alone type. And you have to be convinced of the power of community. So if that's you, I would like to share with you Kelly McGonigal's findings. She's a PhD at Stanford University and she studies stress. Like, why would you do that? She studies stress for a living. You talk about a stressful job. But she studies stress. And this will even amaze the Christians in the room. Here's what she says. She says, The basic biology of feeling connected to other people has a profound effect on stress. She says this, when you feel connected to other people, it does three things to you. Number one, it increases your heart rate variability. I don't have no idea what that is, but apparently it's important. So it increases that. The second thing is it kicks your nervous system into recovery mode. That's a really good thing. 
And the third thing, and this is what blew me away, it releases hormones within men and women such as oxytocin. And what Kelly McGonigal says, she says what's, what's amazing about that is oxytocin is the hormones, the drug that our bodies produce that helps the heart repair itself. She says, how poetic is it that feeling connected to other people literally fixes a broken heart? That blew my mind. I would add this, how poetic is it that God created us to need each other to fix a broken heart? We are designed that way. That was God's design to create us in such a way where we need each other in unity, in prayer. I need you, you need me together. I hope that if there's one thing you do when you leave here today, that you come to the conclusion that I need community. It will fix your broken heart. All of us can take one step closer to being with other people and praying with other people. To be with other people is what we're called to do. And a community of followers of Jesus that pray together can do the seemingly impossible things like spread the love of Christ to an anti-Christian country. Go and be with other people. Let's pray. Father, it, it just astounds me how you create us to need each other. And as someone who likes to be the Lone Ranger, I don't like that I need other people sometimes. And I know there are people sitting in these seats that feel that way. But you created us that way, and I'm so thankful. I pray that each and every one of us, when we feel isolated, when we feel comfortable, that we would step onto the edge of yikes for you with others. Help our prayers to be bold, to not just fill empty space or not transition. Help us just to pray and live and be with you and with others. I thank you that we're able to have this conversation. And I pray that as people sit in these seats, maybe there's some that feel isolated right now. I pray that you would show them that you are here. You never are not here. I pray that there's those that are on the edge of feeling like they need to be a part of a group or not feeling connected, that they would take action, that you would show them the next step. Got to pray for the broken hearts in the room, that when they form community with each other, that you would repair those broken hearts. We love you, Father, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.